0: It's Thursday, July 29th, from the Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. On Mondays and Wednesdays, my co-host Rebecca Darston and I talk about the news. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we bring you interviews with smart people who are knowledgeable, very knowledgeable, in their fields. Today we have a conversation with Diana Shoileva. She's the founder of Inodo Economics, an independent macroeconomic and political forecasting company that focuses on China. As readers or listeners of News Items know, I'm keenly interested in China, and Deanna is one of the sharpest China analysts I've spoken with. We discuss the country's equity markets, how China is changing under President Xi, and why real estate is so important to Chinese families. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Deanna Shulem. Diana, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, John. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I think we have to start with what's going on in the equity markets in China. Can you give us a brief overview of what's happened in the last couple of days and where do you think it's going?
2: A couple of things, actually. One is foreign investors' realization that uh, China, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, is a very different entity that doesn't necessarily, certainly doesn't have actually the foreign investor as its number one priority. It's all about stability and control. And they would happily sacrifice short-term growth for achieving their long-term objectives. And I can tell you in more detail uh, what is behind these regulatory moves And the second reason actually is is probably less visible because it's not just the foreign investors pulling out, it is also domestic liquidity. And that's related to the necessary deleveraging that China has to go through, which entails a lot of financial risk. In fact, uh, we always said towards the end of last year and early this year that this will be a year of two halves and stability will be maintained towards and up to the all-important celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party's founding. And after that, all bets are off. And in fact, the moment the authorities went for the surprise reserve requirement ratio cut, shortly after the anniversary, we changed our call to get out of Chinese equity markets in the certainly next six to 12 months. So actually what you're seeing right now is likely to get worse uh, before it gets better. And of course we can discuss, will it get better?
0: One of the stories that keeps popping up in the midst of this is the Evergrande Corporation or the Evergrande Group. Just to give some context for our listeners, Evergrande Group is the biggest home builder in China and the most indebted developer in the world, which is saying something. This year, and especially in the last few weeks, its financial woes have been in the news constantly falling shares, canceled dividends, and downgraded credit worthiness. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners why that story, the Evergrande story, is so
2: important. For a variety of reasons, actually. I mean, the real estate sector is crucial for China's growth and for financial stability. But also, What we have to realize is that China's debt problems are well known. And China has tried in a very kind of slow motion fashion to address those. De-leverage, de-risk. It's been years since they have tried to do that, thinking that if they do it slowly, they will manage to contain the negative impact on the overall economy and, and the financial sector. Of course, covid through a spanner in the works in that they had to accumulate more debt and all the achievements that they had managed ahead of COVID was thrown out of the window. So what is happening now, which is where the worry comes from uh, a financial stability point of view, is that we've actually been having a number of large entities in China in a state of uh, <laughs> financial distress. <laughs> and they come one after the other without us having been presented with what the solution is going to be. So the stress is building faster than they're coming up with these slow motion solutions. The first was actually who are wrong. What also will come into this as we were anticipating last year is the local government financing vehicles. They haven't yet had a default their bonds. We're expecting one to be A first this year, and it's also the trust sector. So this is what, on the one hand, Evergrande and in general, the fate of the real estate sector has huge implications for essentially people's wealth. Because in China, the majority of households hold their assets in property in terms of preservation, long-term returns. And so on the one hand, that's the worry. On the other hand, it is the deleveraging process, and how bad is it, and how bad is it going to get?
0: At what point does too big to fail come on the stage if it's not already there now?
2: Well, I mean, too big to fail, of course, is um, a decision that the Chinese Communist Party can decide itself. Right. Very few people can make that decision very swiftly, uh, which is important to keep in mind. In, in Should they choose to bail out, they can do that Quickly, of course, the problem has been over the years is that by sweeping these problems under the carpet continuously, without necessarily placing the economy on a sustainable future growth path, what you get is this continual increase in the debt to GDP uh, ratio. And that cannot go on forever. Sadly, economics is not a precise science. So there is no precise number that you could say, oh, over that number, it all goes bust. It doesn't work like that, but China is now kind of in comparison internationally when we look at overall non-government, non-financial sector debt above the levels that Japan ran into serious problems. So it's in uncharted territory. And in that sense, the authorities in China know that they can't just keep doing this, certainly not after the global financial crisis, because the world is no longer their oyster for a variety of reasons. So they can't grow their way out of these debt problems. They need to allow some default. And it's always with each case is this judgment call. Shall we allow this default to start introducing risk into the system, to start pricing capital better because we've accumulated huge excesses? Or is this going to lead to systemic risk and we should plug this particular gap?
0: Where would you put Evergrande on that uh, scale? I mean, do they have to, you know, intervene, or is it possible for them to let it default, or is it too risky? I guess is the word.
2: <laughs> Anything is possible. Um, it's a very interesting question, John, because it relates to the market route in a way. You need to understand, so so one of the questions I've been getting from clients in in all this is which sector next? I mean, you know, we saw tech, education, what's next? I think housing is next. Really? I mean, that's my kind of assessment. And I'll tell you why. Let's look at what's happening to all this, to Didi, to Alibaba, to Tencent, to the education sector, to, you know, issues about uh, drivers being treated unfairly and all of that. So essentially, under Xi, there are three guiding principles, I think, that explain where we are. And it's certainly not economic growth at all costs. They are to achieve self-sustainability, to improve and lessen income and wealth inequality, and everything is looked at through the prism of national security, which of course you can not only think about China, but really preserving the CCP's control on power. So what we are seeing here in some of these uh, actions is the issue of income inequality. Because when Deng Xiaoping, and by the way, he didn't necessarily say this, but he was explicitly asked about it by an American journalist in a rare TV interview, so we have it on record. Uh, Deng Xiaoping said, to get rich is glorious, but what we mean by that is that for some people to get rich first is okay, as long as we um, that leads to industrial catch-up and productivity growth improvement. But we are a socialist economy. And we don't want rich people and poor people. We want equality. And what has happened following that is that, yes, China has grown tremendously. It has caught up. It has become the global manufacturing powerhouse. But it is also one of the most unequal countries in the world in both income and wealth. And so this does not sit well with Xi Jinping in in his China for the new era, (laughs) That is something he's working very hard to address. And if you'd like, the guiding motto of the party is to make people's lives better. And that does, again, go in the direction uh, of, of also redistributing income. Now, why housing comes into this is that, of course, this continual house price inflation makes rich people rich and poor people poorer, or rich people richer and poor people poorer. And it is socially divisive. Xi Jinping has been saying for at least the past uh, three and a half years that houses are not for speculation, Mm -hmm. understand investment in, in their case, but for living in. And that message is not landing. And it's not landing, actually, because <laughs> the Chinese don't have really any other credible and trustworthy opportunity to park their wealth and expect a significant or wealth preservation and significant potentially increase in wealth. Their domestic savings are, are dammed up at home by the capital controls. You also, if you look at the financial sector... You have two-thirds of household wealth in financial interest-bearing deposits that earn practically nothing in real terms because the rates are administered to help that continuous industrial expansion by keeping credit rates low as well. You had the shadow banking activity kind of spring up post the financial crisis, providing high yields to depositors, but the authorities have clamped down on that. And then you have the equity market and that is looked at. I mean, it is retail driven and dominated, but retail in the sense of sort of higher net worth money being the main owner. It's not professionalized uh, investment, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. And the equity market has been viewed inside China and outside akin to a, a casino. It's not where the Chinese put their money for long term gains or right. preservation of wealth. Uh, and so, very few options are given as assets um you know and bizarre things become assets in china <laughs> all sorts you know not just antiques and paintings and so on um so in that sense she has to do something to land his message i think and already one of the regulatory announcements has been that the property management sector will be sort of under the regulatory microscope so Whether Evergrande is the sort of entity that he would use to teach the lesson, I would say it's more about getting households to realize that, you know what, start diversifying your wealth because we want to stop this house price inflation. It is uh, probably less so about, let's get one of these property developers to roll over as it is the largest and it's a lot of hidden risks there.
0: Mm. So... Given your feeling that housing is sort of the next uh, domino to fall, what is your prognosis for the next six months or a year for the equity markets in China? what are you telling your clients other than housing is the next um, domino
2: I mean having been telling them for for two years that this uh, market was on its way up as I uh, mentioned earlier immediately after the rrr cut i change the call in anticipation. I didn't expect it to come so quickly. I thought it will be over the course of this year uh, or the second half of this year that we'll have to change the call and call the end of that. Right. But it happened earlier in a way than I anticipated. And I'm glad we made that call because, of course, of what's going on this week as well. Now, the reasons why is because this regulatory overhaul will deepen. And in some ways, this is good news for the long term if they are successful because they are trying to professionalize the market. Mm -hmm. In China, nothing is ever black and white. It's not, oh, it's all about control. Oh, it's all about bringing the independent-minded tech entrepreneurs to heal. It is also about ensuring that they break up these monopolies, that they deliver the kind of data privacy at the level of the ordinary individual. Of course, the party would oversee and and have visibility over everything, but they are addressing some of the concerns that are bothering the ordinary people. And you would argue that while big tech will suffer in that environment, uh, the startups have a better prognosis going forward. So a lot of this is trying to professionalize the equity market to make it as a credible alternative to housing for households to invest in the long term. But in the short term, (laughs) that is translating to a lot of pressure, a pressure that the foreign investor in particular has been complacent about. I can't understand why the Ant Group, um, Mm -hmm. where, where it all kind of maybe in most visible fashion began. Uh, wasn't a signal enough. But in my conversation, and we have clients across the world, in large uh, mutual funds, in small funds, hedge funds, across the panoply of investor types, it was like, oh, business as usual in China. I like well, it's not really business as usual, is it? I mean, China under Xi is a very different entity. And the Communist Party, he has achieved full control. So. China as a whole is moving in the direction that he would like it to move.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about... Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Welcome back to News Items. We're here with Diana Shoilova. Let's take a brief detour into your own background, Diana. How did you get from Bulgaria to advising clients all over the world about China?
2: I will tell you, John. I blame crime books and communism.
0: Crime books and communism. Yes. let's start with crime books.
2: uh, Yeah, as a child, growing up in uh, communist Bulgaria, uh, sort of uh, crime books were safe ground. And I read a lot and I loved them. And I wanted to become a detective. Now, in the event I became an economist and I had the opportunity to become an economist because the Berlin Wall fell and then the opportunities in front of me were endless. And then economist is a little bit, well, actually a lot like being a detective, because you collect as much raw information as possible. You must you know, verify what, what it is. You can't take it at face value. And then you try and build a coherent picture by putting as many pieces of the puzzle into the same story. And the more pieces you put, the more confident you get. <laughs> Communism comes into it. So I went to university in the UK after graduating with my bachelor's degree in Bulgaria. I did my master's in the UK. I got a job at the Economic uh, Research Consultancy. And this was the year of 2000. And this outfit uh, had um, actually form on Asia. I mean, I was really impressed when I applied for a job because they got the Asian financial crisis spot on, well ahead of everyone. And we were sitting in the office that year and discussing um, that we should monitor China a lot more regularly because it was going to transform the global economy. And I got the job fresh off. And then I, you know, talking to my then boss, I said, why, why do you remember? I don't remember. I mean, I I actually didn't speak Mandarin. And he said, well, I mean, I think at the time I thought that you have lived in communism and you would be able to understand this better because you're kind of Western trained, you understand market economics, but you also understand the innate structure and nature of a communist system. Of course, Bulgaria and China are not the same, but there's a lot of similarities. And it was interesting because when I branched out on my own and set up another economics five years ago to focus on China, I asked the clients I've had over the years, what was it? You know, what makes me unique? And it was exactly this point they brought up. They said, we think you get things right uh, so often because you have this very unusual mix, but on top of it, not being Chinese, (laughs) because I'm not biased by feelings of nationality. You know, if you want to know another thing, and I'll stop there, I always wanted to be a big fish in a big pond. Forget about big fish in a a small pond, certainly not a small fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. Uh, And China was the fantastic opportunity for me to achieve that.
0: When you go to China, do you have access to the people you want to have access to? Is that difficult or is it relatively straightforward?
2: It's changed a lot in the last few years. But first of all, let me say that I've never been the sort of analyst that goes around hobnobs with people in power or of importance or consequence and then comes back and says what I heard and what they're saying. No. The way I do research is to look at information and data and piece it together. And visiting China and talking to these people is context. And... I'm always extremely aware not to put anyone in trouble because I know what it's like to live in communism. I know how petrified I was when I grew up. So I'm always very conscious of that fact. But at the same time, I think I realized, and this was actually what I realized when I was advising the domestic fund managers, that they find it easy to talk to me because I can bridge the two worlds and I understand where they're coming from and I can explain the West to them in the same way as I can explain the East to West. And in that sense, I have developed deep contacts and I have access, but I always approach this access with a lot of respect and worry. (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> for good reason, I would suspect. We're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't
1: change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Welcome back to News Items. Let's switch gears for a moment, Diana, and talk about digital currency what could a digital one do for the country and why do you think it's so important
2: it's a game changer in terms of the domestic payment system that the control that it will give the communist party i mean the digital currency uh, which is centralized it's right. not like blockchain being decentralized gives full control and and detail of visibility that the chinese communist party can use to shape the economy and people's behavior in any shape and form that they would like. And they stress a lot that this is very much aimed at the domestic market. And of course, that's part of the story. But it is also very much part of China's efforts to decouple from its dependence on the US dollar based global payment system. And they have made headway on that front as well in terms of development of distributor ledger technology for cross-border payments. And the digital yuan is only part of this effort on every front to ensure that China, in effect, creates its own financial sphere of influence where it dominates capital markets, it dominates payments. It doesn't necessarily mean it wants to dominate the global payments system. But there wouldn't be any such thing as a global payment system the way we're going, because Mm -hmm. we are in the midst of what I call the great decoupling, which is this all-encompassing geopolitical confrontation between the existing superpower, the US, and the aspiring superpower, China. It's a very different story to, let's say, the Cold War, because now we're so integrated in terms of supply chains and capital markets, not so much in terms of people, but even people, that it's difficult to imagine how we will (laughs) bifurcate in two spheres of influence. But I think that's the direction of travel as I see it right now. And it will be very messy, very disruptive because we are so integrated and almost puts investors in totally uncharted territory, having to figure out What aspect of how we run our economies, how we run our monetary policy, how we run our fiscal policy, how markets operate, how capital flows will remain and what will change dramatically?
0: What do you think will change dramatically?
2: I mean, for starters, I think if you are the owner of assets rather than the portfolio manager who have different mandates, of course, I think you have to be asking yourself, do I want to spend the returns? in the sphere of influence that I am or not, mm-hmm. because there is no guarantee that the free movement of capital will survive this clash. Right. <laughs> and so that's one, you know, okay, let's say we have identical companies in the American sphere of influence and in the Chinese sphere of influence. My assessment is that in the Chinese sphere of influence, you know, if the valuation costs the same, I will have a higher return, but actually number one. Will I, as the owner of capital in a socialist economy, be the first in the queue (laughs) for what will be a massive redistribution of income going forward? Or will I be last in the queue? I mean, my guess is last. So number one, will I see my returns or will I be roped in like everyone else in China in helping whichever sector is in trouble uh, or whatever part of the economy needs support? So I might not see those high returns, even if those companies outperform. But even if they get paid to me, will I be able to repatriate? And as China progresses down the route of the digital yuan, it will be a situation where you either go with digital yuan or with nothing. I mean, not with US dollars. What we are observing now, it's not just a tech crackdown in terms of, I mean, the tech crackdown is about bringing those guys to heel, Uh, it's about breaking up monopolies to improve productivity, growth, technological progress, it's about data privacy, it's about data protection from abroad in terms of national security, but it is also about the fact that why should China's most valuable tech companies be listed abroad? It's never made any sense. It's just that China always delayed its development of its capital markets because it was focused on the industrial side, Now it has to develop its capital markets. And of course, these guys need to be listed at home, especially now that Chinese companies are beaten on the head by US regulators themselves, which is a huge, if you'd like, also image damaging. So we are already seeing a bifurcation in the capital markets in ways that originally looked like it was the US in the driving seat, but China has kind of asserting itself now Interestingly, another point that is very important to make is that it wasn't Trump that kick-started the decoupling. It has always been China's long-term strategy to achieve self-sufficiency. And it was only open to the rest of the world in as much as it could help it progress and uh, catch up and recover from what they consider as 100 years of humiliation, a huge blow to their sense of national self-confidence, and they've been in search of their modern identity, something that the Communist Party claims that they have now sort of given that back to the Chinese people.
0: We're coming to the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask you, what should our listeners be alert to in the coming years, say in the next five years, with regards to developments in China? What should they be paying special attention to now? that will help them understand what is likely to happen later.
2: The issue of the biggest consequence for the rest of the world and China itself, which kind of dwarfs any other ructions that could arise in this great contest is Taiwan. It is whether the U.S. and China will find a manageable way to coexist with each keeping its system uh, and address the, the, the sort of existential problems of the planet, like climate change, because China at the moment is saying, uh, no, we're not cooperating on this unless you cooperate on other issues. Will those two countries uh, manage to find that peaceful way of coexistence or will it all come to blows? And it all is focally in the South China Sea and in particular, uh, it is related to Taiwan. If you give up Taiwan militarily, you give up the Indo-Pacific. Right. So any developments on that front will have by far the most uh, far-reaching consequences for the whole planet.
0: Any last words for our listeners before we let you go?
2: Oh God, uh, you know I'm so depressed. Probably our listeners <clears throat> and I'm a glass-half-full person, <laughs> so that says something. Live for the moment, really, and uh, and enjoy what you have. And for investors to move in that direction now. um, You know, actually an interesting story is soft commodities because um, it is, if you'd like, a good investment story whether China does well, rises and has to feed its population or we enter in a world of conflict and confrontation where even basic supply chains um, get challenged. So um, think locally, actually, how to optimise and my advice to every boardroom <laughs> and uh, executive is, you need to understand China. Hmm. You need to understand what they're doing, how they're doing it, and how it's going to impact you. You'd be stupid not to.
0: Indeed. For our listeners, the soft, what do you mean by soft
2: commodities? I mean grains. Grains, okay, good. But also protein content. Um, right got water content you know there is a big issue with water globally so food
0: right diana thank you very much it's been a real pleasure to talk to you
2: john the pleasure is all mine thank you so much
0: thanks for tuning into the news items podcast the podcast is based on my newsletter which is available at newsitems.substack.com news items is produced by christian castro russell pierre Bienname. Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is the great Simran Singh. I'll be back on Monday with my interview with Jane Metcalf, the founding editor of Neo.life, a news site that covers science, technology, and the future.